0: Politics, Social Unrest, Economic Uncertainty, International Conflicts, Climate Change. What is the significance of these current events? Where are we heading? Pastor Gary Webster shares answers from the Bible, giving you hope and certainty in the times ahead. Welcome to Countdown, Back to the Future. This episode is entitled, The Assassination of God to
1: Hell and Back. Father in heaven, we pray tonight that you will help us to understand this vital subject. Be present with us, open our minds and open our lives, our hearts to you, because we know that you love us and we know that time is running out. So be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking at the assassination of God to hell and back. You've probably noticed that in the last few years there have been lots of reports of people saying they've been to hell and back. Notice some of the titles of books. 23 Minutes in Hell, A Man's Journey to Hell and Heaven and Back, and, and so on. Lots of people making claims that they've been to hell and even to heaven. Well, what do we make of all this? What's the truth about this? How do we understand all of this tonight? I wonder if we can have those... Are those lights on able to be on in the, in the hall? That'd be great. Yeah, then I can see everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that we'll be okay on the screen. Yeah, anyway, yeah, that's fine. Okay, now there are serious consequences with the current belief that many people have about hell. Serious consequences indeed. Let me share with you. Here we have Robert Ingersoll. He was a famous agnostic. He was brought up in a Christian home. His father was a preacher. And this is what his father taught him when he was just a little kid. That there were babies in hell, not more than a few inches long, uh, who were destined to burn there throughout eternity. This is the bedtime stories that Robert Ingersoll had. Now, Robert Ingersoll, after you know, that sort of story, time and time again, when he grew up, he said, well, if that's what God is like, I hate God. Now, let me tell you, there are many people who are atheists tonight because of this, the current belief of hell that people right now are roasting and toasting in hell and they will be there right on into eternity and on and on and on and on and it'll never stop there are many people tonight who are atheists is this true what do we make of it so we're going to look at these questions is hell real number two are there really people suffering in hell right now while we're sitting here in this meeting And then do people suffer in the fires of hell for eternity? Does it go on and on and on? And then a very important question, how can you have hell and a loving God? That's a pretty important question when you stop and think of it. So let's begin with this first question, this last one. How can you have hell and a loving God? We have to understand three facts if we're going to put those two things together, hell and a loving God. Number one, we have to understand something about sin and its consequences. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now you'll notice he's talking about eternal death here because he contrasts it with eternal life. That's the sort of death he's talking about. Eternal life, he's contrasting it with Death, which means eternal death. Now, the Bible calls this eternal death the second death, the death from which you never wake up again. There's no resurrection after the second death. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So this is a biblical term. Now, you remember last week we looked at the subject of the 1,000 years When we were looking at Armageddon, you will recall that there were two resurrections, one at either end. The first resurrection of life and then a second resurrection of condemnation. Remember, people rise in the first resurrection. They are the blessed and holy. Those who rise in the second resurrection are those who cling to sin. And then there's that great white throne judgment we talked about. And then they are put down forever. That's the second death after the second resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. Now, is eternal death or the second death, that's what that one is, is this because God wants to get even with us? So you didn't accept me, my salvation, you didn't accept Jesus, so I'm going to wham you one. Is that what's going on here? Just because you didn't accept God, he's going to give you a, a good thumping. Eternal death, second death. Is that what's going on? Well, watch carefully. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. The first one, the second death or eternal death, it's a wage. It's not. Imagine if you worked for me and I said, here's your gift. You'd say, this is no gift, I work for this thing. This 40 hours a week or whatever it was. So this is the consequence of sin. So eternal death is a wage. But eternal life is a gift. This is the consequence of our choices. Your choice and my choice has a consequence And it's not a gift, it's a wage. Now, remember that when a person is on life support system, if they're conscious, it's possible for them to reach over and turn off the switch or pull out the plug. And our life support system is Christ. Life does not exist apart from God. We're only living now because of God. Should God, that's what the Bible says in the book of Daniel. When Daniel was talking to Belshazzar, he says, God holds your life in his hand. We all exist, everyone on this planet, whether we hate God or whether we love God, it's because life comes from God, which is what the Bible says. Those who have the sun have life. They're plugged into the sun. Those who do not have the sun do not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So what the Bible is telling us is this. God is the source of life. If we plug into him through Christ, we have life. But if we want to disengage, there is no life because all life is in God. Like the way the Bible puts it in Deuteronomy here. That you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life. Notice that very clearly here. God is the source of life. So to pull away from that is to pull away from life. Christ, our life support system. So eternal death is the consequence of disengaging from the life support system or not plugging in. Unplugging from the eternal life support system, the result will be eternal death death. And we can see it's our choice. It's not because God gets even with us. It's our choice to unplug from the life support system. So that's the first thing. We have to understand sin is, has a wage, a consequence. Number two we want to talk about is parenthood. If we want to understand how to have hell and a loving God, we must understand something about parenthood in the Bible. The Bible says... Or what man is there of you who, if his son shall ask him for bread, will he give him a stone? (laughs) Would you give your kids a rock if they said dad can have a piece of bread? Of course you wouldn't. Or if he shall ask for a fish, will he give him a snake? Come on, how many of you you parents are going to give your your kid a dew guide or a tiger snake (laughs) when he says, can I have a fish? No way. Notice what that's the point. If you then being evil, meaning we are sinners as human beings, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now think of it. God is better than us. Now, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So, the Father is exactly like Jesus in terms of character. That's what Jesus is telling us. Are we better than the Father? We human beings, of course not. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Do parents discipline their children? Well, if you're a good parent, you will, won't you? Bad parents don't discipline their children. Good parents do. It's discipling them, disciplining them, helping them to grow We have to discipline to help our kids. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Suppose you say to your precious little kids, don't take the biscuits. I don't want you to eat the biscuits between meals. So one day, you come home, mum, and you see your little kids have helped themselves to the cookie jar and they've taken some biscuits. Now, are you going to get your kids and pour petrol over them and set a light to them for three hours? I don't think so. How about an hour? How about half an hour? No, you say, let the, the punishment fit the crime and so on and so forth. But think about it. That's, what, that's exactly what we say God will do. God will take his kids who have sinned, and he will douse them and, and set a light to them and keep it going forever and ever and ever and ever. You wouldn't do it. So why was God going to do that? for eternity. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your father who is in heaven we would not do such a thing. Why do we accuse God of it? Number 3. If we want to understand how to have hell and a loving God, we must understand Calvary, the cross. Let's go and notice, but he, that's Jesus, was wounded for our transgression. Put your name where it says our. He was bruised, that word means crushed, for our iniquities. Put your name again where it says our. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. And the Lord, God Almighty, has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity or the sin of us all. Think about those words for a moment. That's what happened when Jesus was on Calvary. The Bible says, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for you and me. When Jesus hung on the cross, he became sin for us. He he took by taking your sin and mine. What was the result? Well, death was the result we've seen previously. But was it just physical death? Was that the main result of all this? No way. Notice what happened when Jesus hung on the cross carrying your sin and my sin and the sin of the whole world. Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Wow. There was a reason. Jesus, you have been made sin by taking the sin of my kids Christ you see felt abandoned by God when he was on the cross he felt that you can just read his see his words there but your iniquities have separated you from your God we saw a few evenings ago and your sins have hidden his face from you sin separates when Jesus took sin your sin my sin the sin of the whole world he felt separated from the father The wage or the consequence of sin ultimately is separation from God. Christ experienced that sort of eternal separation from God that the sinner who clings to sin and holds on to it will sense at the end, that eternal separation. So we might never experience that eternal separation. That's why Jesus experienced it for us. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the same word. My God, why have you forsaken me? What beautiful words these are. He was forsaken so you might never be forsaken at the end. Amazing grace. Christ was willing to be eternally separated from his father for you and me. Wow. Wow. Christ was willing to be separated eternally from God that's the amazing thing now when Moses the man who was given the Ten Commandments when he was given the Ten Commandments he came down from the mountain and the people were dancing around a a golden altar a, a, a calf naked They had sinned against God and Moses smashed the commandments on the ground because he said, you people have broken these commandments. You've separated yourselves from God. And then he pleaded with God. I want you to notice what he said. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if you won't forgive their sin, I pray, blot me out of your book. Take my name out of the book of life, which you have written. Now, if Moses was willing to lose his eternal life, For the sake of the Israelites who had done such a terrible thing. How much more do you think Christ was willing to do that? What an amazing thing. Jesus became one of us, took our sin and was willing to lose his eternal life for us. Eternal separation from God is ultimately what hell is all about. That's what hell is ultimately all about. The separation from God. So how can we have hell and a loving God? Three things. Number one. Sin brings a wage, a consequence. It's not because God gets even with us that we have this. Number two, would we do, are we better than God? And thirdly, Calvary. The result ultimately is eternal separation. But there will be fire. Even though ultimately hell is not about fire, there will be fire because the Bible says so. So we need to understand this. Christ spoke in one of the parables about this matter notice what he said because he told about a farmer who sowed weeds and someone sowed weeds a couple of nights later we talked about that notice what he says he answered and said he that sowed the good seed that's the wheat that is the son of man that's me and the field is the world he said and he said the good seed are the children of the kingdom those who plug into the life support system And the weeds are the children of the evil one, the children of the devil. And the enemy that sowed them, planted the weeds among the wheat, that is the devil. Now notice what he says next. And the harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. They come with Jesus, we've seen. As therefore the weeds are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be when... In the end of the world, the Son of Man shall send his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that cause stumbling and those that sin and will throw them into the furnace of fire. But when is the furnace of fire we just saw? At the end of the world. Not now. So anybody who says, I've been to hell and back, is absolutely wrong. Because Jesus said the fire is not till the end of the world. So this is how we know. Or they might have seen something. But they surely didn't go to, to hell. Let me tell you that for sure. No matter what they said, because the Bible says hell is at the end of the world. That's how we know what's going on here. Let's go back here. So hell is at the end of the world, not now. Let's notice what Peter said. Peter said the same thing. Peter said, but the day of the Lord will come. That's future. That's future in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. When is it going to be? Future to Peter's day. Not now. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So the fire, according to Jesus, is at the end of the world. The fire, according to Peter, is in the future at the end of the world. No one is suffering in hell now. That's the first thing we need to understand. No one is suffering in hell now hell is at the end of the world now the next question is does hell last forever so when hell does happen will it go on and on and on for eternity we need to answer that question now the bible says and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them we saw this last week the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone this is what the bible calls hell This is when the fire is at the end of the world. All right. Satan and those who cling to sin are completely destroyed in the fire. How do we know that? Well, let's come to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. The Bible says, for behold, the day is coming, burning as a furnace. It's future, he says. You notice it's coming. And all the proud and all that do wickedness shall be stubble. And the day that is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Nothing is left, you can see here. Won't leave them root or branch. Notice what it says. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be what? Ashes. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I make, says the Lord. So the Bible says... That those who cling to sin, yes, the fire comes, but they are reduced to ashes. And even Satan is reduced to ashes, according to the Bible. Notice what the Bible says about this. The Bible says, talking about the devil, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. We saw this about two or three weeks ago. Till iniquity was found in you, all covering cherub, the angel, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst and it devoured you. And I turned you to ashes. Even the devil is going to be turned to ashes upon the earth. You have become a horror and you and you shall be no more forever. So you see what the Bible is teaching here. Hell does not go on for eternity. This idea that the devil there is stoking up the fires of hell and the people are there and everybody's frying and cooking for eternity is not in the Bible. It's absolutely not in the Bible. And it makes God look very grotesque when you stop and think about it. The total annihilation or non-existence of Satan and all who freely choose to live without God, that's the result, they cease to exist. Hell is the consequence of disconnecting from Christ, our life support system that's the consequence of that because life is only in God, the consequence of using our freedom to say no to God, so he can see the consequence, so he warns us of those consequences. now why does God have a hell then? why does he have a fire? why does he want to dis- why does he have to destroy people who cling to sin? well you know the you know the word uh, A rotten orange or a rotten lemon or a rotten apple will send what? The rest will be affected. We do the same thing when we have some disease among sheep or cattle. What do we have to do? We have to destroy some to save the rest. Because for the safety, the peace and the security of the whole universe, God has to put those who cling to sin out of existence. And when the fire has done its work, then the fire goes out. It doesn't go on forever. Earth becomes the site of the last empire. How do we know the fire goes out? Because they're reduced to ashes. Ashes is ashes. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. The fire comes down on this earth we just read. And then this earth, this earth is renewed and the fire is no more. God makes a new place for his kids. God takes no joy in destroying those who cling to sin. And yet when you read some of the works of some of these great preachers of the past and even the present, they talk about how God delights in causing people to suffer on and on for eternity. That is absolutely wrong. Because the Bible says these words. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no delight in this at all. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. I'm so glad, let me tell you, my friends, that this is the truth of the Bible on hell, because if it's the other story, let me tell you, God's got bad press. God comes off looking pretty horrible, and that's very well expressed. Now, let me just share with you a few things, the results, some of the results of this idea of an eternally burning hell. First of all, eternal torment in hell denies the truth about death because we've seen in the past, how much do the dead know? They know nothing. They're simply sleeping. But you think about this. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Now, if people are in hell now and on for eternity, they know plenty. Might not be a good quality of life, but they've got life. They're still alive somewhere and yet it it, it completely denies what the Bible says, what happens when you die. The dead know nothing. Secondly, eternal torment in hell denies the gospel of Jesus Christ because the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. Yet these people get everlasting life in hell for eternity and they never believed so think about that that's what happens if I go at death into hell and I stay there for eternity I've got some form of life the eternal life because I'm, I'm going to roast and toast for eternity yet I got it without believing it denies the gospel only people who have eternal life are those who believe in Jesus and that's how the Bible puts it and eternal torment in hell smashes God's character, let me tell you, big time. I want you to think about this for a moment. It was what one person said, Everlasting torture is intolerable from a moral point of view, because it pictures God acting like a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz, like what happened in the Nazis' burned people in the ovens, an everlasting Auschwitz for his enemies whom he does not even allow to die. I suppose one might be afraid of a God like that. I sure would be. But could we love and respect a God like that? Come on now. Could we love and respect a God like that? Of course we couldn't. Impossible. Anthony Flew, one time an influential atheistic philosopher, was right to object that if Christians really believe that God created people with the full intention of torturing Some of them in hell forever. They might as well give up the effort to defend Christianity. Good words, Mr. Flew. Very good words. You know, what these men are saying is this. If this is the truth, that when we die, if we're bad, we're going to roast and toast for eternity, always in pain, and it'll never stop then one day God will have to apologise to Adolf Hitler because what they're saying is this. At least when Adolf Hitler put them into the gas ovens, into the, into the, into the gas chambers and then took them out and, and put them in these ovens, at least they died and their misery stopped. But God does not let it stop. He lets it go on and on and on and on. You see the point? That's why this teaching has made many atheists around the world. And I thank God tonight that God is not like that. Not like that at all. There was a farmer, actually it was actually here in Western Australia I read about it. Um, he, his, his, his barns were burned down. And uh, he was of course pretty depressed the next morning to survey the damage and uh, when he came to the chicken house, he found a pile of feathers, chook. And, and in, his, in his depression and his state of mind, he just gave it a good kick and out popped a brood of chickens. <laughs> and then this guy realised what had happened. Mum Hen had called her chickens together when the fire started and gathered them under her wings and she had paid the supreme price. To give them life. And it's a bit like that with Jesus isn't it? He can see there's a fire coming and the result of it ultimately is eternal separation so he's taken our place. He's covered us so we don't have to go through that. What an amazing God. I want to just pray for a moment and then we're going to take a break. Let's bow together. Father in heaven we thank you for the subject of Hell that's in the Bible We thank you that it's not True what some people Say Because if it is Then We could not really love you Certainly couldn't respect You or love you at all we fear You thank you Father Bible father may we Put our trust in Jesus may We plug into the life support system May we not pull away From the source of life Jesus Christ, in his name. Amen. Because I know that some people do have questions and we need to answer them. So please feel free to leave if you need to. That's fine. Otherwise, I'll just keep going. All right. What are the questionable texts? Well, what about this idea of eternal hellfire? Doesn't the Bible talk about a fire that's eternal? Well, let's put the text up here. Jesus is talking Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, so that's what it says, everlasting fire. That's look like a fire that never goes out, doesn't it? All right. Well, the Bible says that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed with eternal fire. So let's have a look at that text. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of what? Eternal fire. Wow, that's interesting, isn't it? So the Bible says Sodom suffered the vengeance of what sort of a fire? Eternal fire. Well, let's see what Peter said. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Hang on. If it's turned into ashes, then it's it's not burning anymore because that's what happens to ashes. Condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So who is right, Jude or Peter? Ashes or eternal everlasting fire? Well, let me tell you, you can go to Sodom today. Archaeologists, many archaeologists believe they found Sodom. It's across in Jordan, across from a place that's mentioned in the Bible called Ai. When you come here, you can see that a lot of destruction actually took place in this place on one occasion. Here is a lot of ash here, you can see it. Thick layer of ash. Not only that, they discovered that um, objects had been clearly sort of. Uh, more than fried. You know when it happened in, nu- in the nuclear bomb, the, in bomb in, uh, the, the A-bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the Second World War, everything was just like, phew, well, melted and so on. This is what they discovered in this place as well. So what's it saying then? Well, what it's saying is this. The results of the fire are eternal, not the process of burning. In other words, what's the everlasting fire means? It has an effect that's everlasting. Sodom is no more forever but not the fire that goes on forever it does its work and its effects are eternal otherwise these two texts contradict each other one says ashes and it's clearly that's what it is today it's not burning today and the other one says eternal fire meaning the effects of the fire are eternal not the process is eternal what about this one unquenchable fire doesn't the bible mention that yes it does if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, said Jesus. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go into hell, to hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Well, that looks like the fire is never going to go out. Well, let's have a look at that for a moment. Let's go to Jerusalem 600 BC when the Babylonians came here. The Bible said these words in Jeremiah. He predicted this. I will kindle a fire in its gates. It shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. So this was the prediction that Jerusalem would be quenched, not, it would be an unquenchable fire. It said it shall not be quenched, unquenchable. Well, I've been to Jerusalem many times, let me tell you. I've seen the gates of Jerusalem. I've even know of the gates that are under the ground where they, the first ones were where they were built on top. None of it's burning today, I can assure you. So what does it mean? It means this. By the way, here are some of the ruins. These are some of the ruins from the time of Jeremiah. They're not on fire. You can see that very clearly. Those are the very rooms that... They've discovered arrowheads from the Assyrians. A quenchable means man cannot put it out. When it's done its work, it goes out. But you cannot put it out. When it's done its work that God sends it to do, then it will go out. Man can't put it out. It does its work, and that's it. What about a forever fire? How do we understand this one? Well, this is an interesting one. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever forever and ever that sounds like it goes on for eternity doesn't it so how do we understand this one well you remember the story of jonah and the big fish right that swallowed up jonah what is what the bible says i went down to the moorings of the mountains jonah's talking about when he got thrown overboard and went down into the sea i went down to the moorings of the mountains the earth with its bars closed behind me forever how long was jonah in that fish for yeah three days and three nights the bible says For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, forever. Well, it might have felt like forever, wouldn't it? (laughs) in the Belly of a fish. But it wasn't forever in the sense that we use forever. Clearly, the Bible can use the word forever as a limited period of time, depending on what you're talking about. Let's give another example. This one's about Samuel this time. Samuel the prophet. Look at this one. But Hannah did not go up. That's to the temple. For she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. How long did he remain there? Look what it says in verse 28 there underneath. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives he shall be lent to the Lord. So forever doesn't mean how we always understand forever. Forever it can be a limited period of time, as long as he lives. That's clearly what the Bible's saying. So what does it mean then? It means this. Forever in the Bible, the way it uses it, it can be a limited period of time, very clearly from both these two stories. As long as it lasted is one way of looking at it. As long as he lived. What it means is this. The subject and the context determines the length of forever. When God says... You're going to live with me forever. He means that because he's the life giver. And we have immortality because it tells us all those things. We don't die anymore. So it's the context, it's the subject that determines the length of forever in the Bible. We usually approach the Bible from our understanding in a 21st century. We have to go into how the Bible uses those words and then it doesn't contradict itself. So I hope that's helpful. There's one more. That someone might have a question in, and that is the one that says, What about the rich man and Lazarus? All right, remember the rich man and Lazarus? You heard of that one? Well, you remember the story. We'll finish with this one. Jesus actually talks about how there was a rich man who lived pretty well. We'll go to the text itself, all right? Well, just turn in the text, and I don't, I'm not going to put these up on the screen for you. But here we go over here. I'll read you some verses and then you just in case some of us don't know the story. The Bible says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. He was really doing pretty good. At his gate was a very poor man named Lazarus, not the Lazarus that Jesus raised to life, covered with sores. Got the picture? This looks pretty gross, doesn't it? who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Don't read this story when you're about to have lunch, do you? Okay. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or his bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, in the fire... Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame, this fire. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. You had had it pretty good. And Lazarus in like manner had bad things, but now he is comforted here in this place and you are in anguish or torment. Beside all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf and you can't cross from one to the other, he says, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so and no one may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, listen to what he says, then I beg you, Father Abraham, to send him to my father's house. Tell him to go to my dad's house, for I have five brothers. He says, and so that you may warn, he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and they have the prophets. Notice that. Let them listen to them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one will rise up from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they don't hear Moses, and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now what's going on here? Is this a true story that Jesus is talking about here? Well, what we have to understand is this is called a parable. okay. And I want to just talk about a parable that happens just before it. And let me ask you a question. In this parable that's called the dishonest manager, there I'll just tell you the story, just the parable so before, this dishonest manager, his boss comes to him one day and he says, you're fired. You haven't been doing a good job. So this man who can see he's going to be fired. He's not fired yet. He's going to be laid off in a week or so. So he says, what am I going to do? I'm going to get fi- I know what I'll do. I'll go to the people who owe my boss money and I'll sort of do a deal with them. So he goes to one man and says, how much do you owe the boss? Oh, I owe him $1,000. Okay, make it 500 Goes to another guy. How much do you owe the boss? Oh, I owe him half a million. Well, make it five hundred thousand. Why does he do that? Because when he's lost his job, he's going to go back to those guys. Remember how I looked after you? I cut your debt in half. And then Jesus says, "What a, what a, what?" This is the words he uses. Jesus, the master, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, was Jesus by teaching this parable? teaching that it's good to be dishonest well of course not what was he teaching from this parable that you need to think ahead and he said many people in the kingdom of God don't think ahead but the people outside the kingdom of God do think ahead so he was not using the parable to teach that it's to be good to be dishonest but he was teaching the parable for another reason it's good to look ahead to think ahead where we're we, we heading okay so not the whole story now what about this other parable well this parable comes because Jesus is having a conflict with these Jews these Jews are not following the Bible they are not doing what the word of God says and so he tells them a story and that's the story now this story actually is written in Jewish literature because this is some of the beliefs that they had and Jesus picks this story up and he uses it to teach a story what's the lesson The reason he takes the story is because this is the story they're familiar with. And he says, now, listen, you say in your story that this rich man is in hell in Abraham's bosom and the other guy there. I'm telling you that even if even if one came from the dead, they wouldn't listen to them. They've got Moses. They've got the prophets. Follow the Bible. That's the lesson he's making here. All right. Now, how do we know it's not a true story? Well, number one, it was a parable that's used back then, for sure. A story, I should say, a belief. It's a little bit like me. If I use the story of Alison in Wonderland in my programs, do you think I believe in Alison in Wonderland's a real story? No. Or Bugs Bunny. Or some other story that I use. No, I don't believe that story is a real story, but I'm using it to make a point. And that's what Jesus did. Taking a story, uses it to make a point. Okay? Now, if... If we're going to take the story and say this is true, then we have to do a few other things. Abraham has a mighty big chest because it says they, everybody lies on Abraham's chest, for starters. Also, this is what hell is going to be like and heaven's going to be like. You're going to look across the gap and you're going to wave to mum in hell. Having a nice time there, mum? Now, oh, come on now. Because they can look at each other, it says in this story. So you've got to have it all. And it also means that you can you know, ask, can you get a drop of water and put it on the guy's tongue in hell and it'll, it'll cool him off. Come on now. This is a story that people believed in Jesus' time, but it's not what he believed. He picks up the story and uses it. How do we know it's not a true story? Because what does the Bible teach? The dead know nothing. Jesus is just using a story just like he used another story not to teach that it's good to be dishonest, but he used the story to pre- make a point. He said, really? That story in your story? Abraham's there? Send someone from hell to, you know, to go and help? and so No. Even if someone rose from the dead, they wouldn't listen. Read the Bible. That's his point. Go to the scriptures and read the Bible.
0: You've been listening to Countdown, Back to the Future, made available by the Victoria Park Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Vic Park SDA Church.
2: Stand who will stand in a sea of sin and live for the truth grow strong from within stand who will stand when all others run and stand
0: Was Ben Everson singing Who Will Stand? Coming up next, Only One Way by The Hawks Trio.
3: gotcha Stories for kids with Uncle Gordon, where you will hear first hand accounts of answers to prayer and miracles from God. Oh, by the way, I think adults will like this too.
0: Hi boys and girls, it's so lovely to be able to share another story with you today. And I hope you're enjoying listening to stories through through this channel. The story I'd like to share with you is again from the man Paul the Indigenous, the Aboriginal gentleman who I talked about last time I shared a story with you. Paul dressed up and had his brother with him one day and then brought his uncle over and they dressed up in their stockman's gear. They had their riding boots on, they had their, their jeans on, their riding breeches, and they had their jackets that covered all their, their body up and that they could wear and their big riding hats and they really looked like the real thing. And they had all been drovers, they'd all been jackaroos and uh, stockmen working on some of the properties, but they hadn't always been that. You see, Paul and his brother and his uncle, who was only about 10 years older than them, they had grown up out in the deserts of Western Australia. Paul's uncle had decided he'd like to go and see what else there was in the world, and so he had left the deserts, and he had found some other people, and he had learned to become a stockman himself. And then, after some years, both Paul and his brother decided they'd go together, and they were going to try and try and track down their uncle and see if they could learn the kind of things he was doing because stories had filtered back of the, of the kind of life that he was living, which sounded interesting and, and appealing to them. Of course, being out there as nomads, they didn't use clothing. Only sometimes in the wintertime they would use the skin of animals and wrap around them for warmth, but it was only for warmth and they didn't see the need of any kind of covering. So when they came out, all they were carrying were some spears and some hunting gear so they could hunt down uh, animals for food and also some little collecting bag, things that they had made for anything they could collect in the way of fruit or nuts or, or anything on the way that they could carry. Anyway, they eventually found their uncle. And uh, he quickly found some people who could get some clothes for them, a shirt and a jacket and then some shoes. And uh, though they didn't think they needed shoes, but they found boots that fitted them and also some good trousers. And they began to learn the art of being a stockman. And they learned how to mend the fences. They learned how to read the cattle. They learned how to ride the horses, to care for the horse, to feed the horse. And they all became Paul and his brother and then his uncle, very good stockmen, and they worked at that for a long, long time. And they received just a small wage, enough to be able to to buy a few extra things that they might have needed from time to time. And then when the uncle was well into his seventies, the owner of the property that they had been working on said, I think it's about time you all retired, because you're working already longer than what most other white people retire at, so I think you need to retire. So they moved to the community of Jigalong. But then they thought, we don't want to sit around. They had never smoked. They had never used alcohol all their lives. And they were both, the three of them were, all very healthy and well still. And so the uncle, first of all, he went over to some of the government officials and asked if he could lease some land. And then Paul and his brother asked the same things and so they were allowed to lease some land and they went and went to the marketplace and they bought their own cattle and they set up their own fences and they ran their own little properties, these three men. And when I was last talking to them, Paul would have been in his late 80s and his uncle would have been in his late 90s by then but still driving his old four-wheel drive out to his property to look after the cattle and occasionally to to take some in a truck into the markets to sell them. So they kept well and strong because of, of their work. Well, as they were out there droving one time, moving the cattle from one point to another, they saw a dingo and each of them carried a, 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 a rifle and uh, Paul had become a very good shot with his rifle and they said, shoot the dingo, Paul. And so Paul quickly lifted his rifle to his, to his shoulder and he fired the shot and uh, he thought it hit it because he hardly ever missed. And he saw the dingo jump a bit, but it kept running. And they said, you need to follow him because he'll eventually drop. If he's been hit, he'll eventually drop. So Paul tied his horse to a, to a little tree and then followed on foot, just carrying his big knife that they'd given him to put in a little sheath on his, on his belt. And eventually he could see the trail of blood where the dingo had been bleeding. And eventually he found it had dropped, it had died. And so his job was to skin the dingo, they could use the skins for all sorts of things, and then to bring the meat back that they could use for food. So he used his knife to skin the, the meat, to skin all, take all the skin off the dingo, and to then, to, then to bring, cut off the meat appropriate to bring back for them to have around their campfire at night for food. He didn't stop and think about it because nobody had told him that once you've used a knife, you need to keep washing it to keep it clean. But the next day they were having food and he pulled out his nice knife from his sheath and and, uh, began to um, cut up some of the meat that he was wanting to eat. And he didn't realize it, but he became poisoned by that and became all uncomfortable in the stomach and then sicker and sicker and sicker until they thought he was going to die. And so quickly somebody uh, radioed the ambulance and um, an ambulance picked him up and took him to the nearest little hospital. When he was taken into that room, Paul said it was the first time he had ever been in a building. It was the first time he'd ever slept with a roof over his head. And he was so worried, he felt so trapped, he felt like he was a prisoner in this little room. But then that night when he thought he was going to die, he all of a sudden saw a man walk into the room, and it was the same man who he had seen years before as a little boy, hanging on the cross. The same face, the same features, the same person who came into the room there, stood beside him and held him on the arm and said, Paul, you're going to be all right. I've touched you. You'll come through this. It'll be all right. Don't be fearful. The next day, Paul was feeling a lot better. And so they gave him a few medicines to take and, and they released him from hospital. and He went back to his work. But as we sat outside his home on his veranda that day, he just said to me, you know, Pastor, God is so good that again he came to visit me. He gave me a dream of himself when I was a little boy and now as a young adult, now as an adult, he has given me a picture of himself. He's come in person to my side and touched me. I just love God so very, very much. What a privilege to belong to God, he said. He said. And I just agreed with him. And we had prayer there together on his veranda. And thank God then for his intervention and his presence with Paul all through his life. And we just wanted to thank God for his love and did so that day. You know, God is present with you every day if you want to have him there. He never pushes himself on you. He never ever forces himself there, but he just wants to invite you to be part of his life. So today... Why don't you again just say, thank you, God, for wanting to be part of my life. I want you to be there and invite him to take your heart and life. And I know God will be part of your life again today. God bless you, boys and girls, and look forward to seeing you, talking to you another time.
3: Listening to Mission Stories for Kids with Uncle Gordon, a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.
2: You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.